0: Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern visit scbts.edu. Well, it is uh, wonderful to be with you again. I'm Dr. Aiken, hearing of your morning beverages. I can remember that uh, when I was uh, a boy, my grandfather, one of them uh, was uh, involved in phosphate mining, chemical companies all over the area where I was growing up. Billboard, chemicals are our friends. <laughs> as, you th- as you have your iced tea and Diet Coke in the morning, and folks, if caffeine is the drug of your choice, chemicals are our friends. It has been a tremendous joy to be here on this campus and to be here at Southeastern. First of all, uh, just the incredible graciousness and hospitality shown to me and to Mary by the Akins who have been our dear friends for so many years. And when I say dear friends, I just want to encourage upon you, to press upon you. You need friends for life. You need friends uh, so that you can exult in their children And uh, rejoice in what the Lord does in their grandchildren. And know the joy of uh, coming together when you're not always together in ministry. And uh, this has just been a thrill. And it's all joy. It's also a joy to seeing you as the students on this campus. So I just want to say something to you. Someone who comes from another seminary and comes to be among you from the same family, I just want to say you have the privilege of studying with this incredibly outstanding faculty of Christian scholars. And they're not just teachers who happen to teach at Southeastern, I can tell from being here, they are a faculty. That doesn't happen everywhere. To where it happens, take advantage of it. Take as many of them as you can, as often as you can. Get all you can out of their classes. And then it's just very reassuring to see students gathering all over the campus. That's a sign of health. And uh, so, do that, because the time will come when you can't do that, and you're going to be in ministry. I was asked uh, just uh, Friday, I was asked um, by a pastor who developed uh, several very, very close friendships, uh, two other men in particular with whom started ministry. And uh, this man's in a place where uh, He's at a crossroads, lots of ministry crossroads. He said, my two brothers with whom I started this task are both solo pastors. One of them is in a, a place in the United States, rather distant, said he hardly ever gets to see When He said, would you do just a video for him to encourage him? I thought, well, there's a friend right there. He's worried about his brother right now. And uh, you need friends like that. You need someone who's thinking of how you're doing on Sunday morning and uh, looking forward to checking on you as soon as he can. Those friendships are likely to begin right here. And if you leave here without any of those friendships, don't think you're the kind of person who's going to pick them up later on. I didn't intend to say that. I just did. It is a privilege to speak about the predicament of Christian ministry in a post-Christian age or a post-Christian culture to a post-Christian civilization. And in the first lecture, I spoke about that predicament of a post-Christian age, the church in that post-Christian age, and today I'm going to talk about the power of Christian witness in a post-Christian age, which in its very nomenclature points to the irony. We're talking about the power of Christian witness in a post-Christian age. Anyone who looks at that and understands the temporal sequence understands that we are saying that there is a power to Christian witness that can only be expressed in an age that thinks it's over it. When I was growing up as a Southern Baptist boy and as a royal ambassador, as I was confronted every single Lord's Day, and since I was there about five days a week, just about every day of my life, one way or another, with a map of the world, that map was was distinguished by the lands that had been reached and the lands that had not been reached. And of course, you look at at uh, Europe, particularly Western Europe, you look at North America. You look at other places. Very much a part of the of the uh, economic and political sphere that uh, involves those countries. You saw a lot of a lot of places that were declared reached, and they're unreached. Even this morning, we prayed for unreached people groups, and we understand missiologically what that means. Technically, it means that that there are there are people groups. And, and that's a fairly new anthropological category. Uh, royal ambassadors didn't talk about people groups when I was 12 and 13 years old. We talked about nations, but we now understand that nations are a political abstraction. It's the it's the cultures within them, linguistic groups, uh, groups that are defined as now people groups. And we know that many of them have never heard the gospel. It's 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 true that for thousands of them it's almost assured that no one in that group has ever heard the gospel. But that is an interesting missiological question. At what point does an unreached people group become a people group once the gospel gets to them? And so there are different missiological uh, organizations that will color the map differently. But the point is that implicit in all of that is a before and after that goes only one way, the wake-up call for Christians, especially in the West, is that that process doesn't go just one way. In other words, there are groups we would declare to be reached who are unreached. Dr. Aiken rightly led us to pray for those who have never heard the gospel even once, in these unreached people groups. But we know there are people who've never heard the gospel once in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Now that's a change, that's a change because even if you look at Southern literature, if, if, if you look at uh, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, William Faulkner, there's a Christ hauntedness that is often described, and, and as I say, literature is often a way of understanding what's going on before the theologians get there, or for that matter, the historians, the anthropologists, and all the rest those who are writing the literature of the age have to think very seriously about the contour of that age, the Christ-hauntedness, especially of the American South. But not only that, this is of the American mind, and you could say of of the Western mind, what C.S. Lewis would refer to as old Western man, a Christ-haunted man. Even if you are not Even if an individual had not been a believing, confessing, regenerate Christian, Christianity was the dominant issue. If you lived in the medieval world, all you knew basically about coming up upon a town was seeing the spire in the distance. The defining architecture of Christendom was the towering spire of the church and the church at the center of the community because the church was the center of the community, One of the things that that is often pointed out in, for instance, English history is that the, the power of the throne was centralized, but the power of the church, the power of the altar, was decentralized. It was spread about. There wasn't a king in every village, but there was a church, the dominating reality. And that meant, by the way, that during Those long centuries, and that extends into at least our last century in the United States, and we can admit that in some places in the United States, it continues even now, decreasingly, in recession, but we understand that there were places and and, and moments when it appeared as if the culture would do everything but win persons to Christ. As for morality, it was a Christian morality, or at least a morality based upon Christian truth, revealed, revealed truth. If uh, there were instincts in the society, they were largely Christian instincts, right and wrong, meaning in life. As I say, one of the most interesting things is to measure just how people think about time, very Christianized understanding of time. Then, by the way, you notice that people want to get over that People want to get over that. So in the academy, they say, hey, you know what? It's just, a, it, it is too Christocentric, religiously oppressive, too, rem, too much a reminder of the oppressive power of Christianity in the past to talk about BC and AD, you know, before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So let's call it BCE, before Common Era, and CE, Common Era. That's something. We've accomplished something. I was on a major university campus, and that was thrown at me as progress, and I said, yes, but the year zero hasn't changed. Let's see, what was that? In other words, you haven't accomplished anything if you still now. I understand that there really isn't a year zero, and we don't know exactly the year Christ was born. The point is that civilizations, our civilization's understanding of time was grounded to what they believed was the most important issue in all of human history, past, present, and future, and that is the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The society carried a lot of freight for us. We talked about the predicament of post-Christianity. We talked about the fact that we can now see history divided not into two, but into three, not just pre-Christian and Christian, but pre-Christian, Christian, and christian but pre christian christian and post-Christian in the contours of the society. Now, this means more, but it certainly does not mean less than what the sociologists describe as secularization, and we don't have time to go into the fact that secularization theory was basically the idea that the modern age would displace religious belief that we would live in a disenCHANTED age, as Max Weber described it. Uh, that we would we would live as rational creatures in a social world without the need for what Peter Berger would later call the sacred canopy. We could just we could, we, we could live life in a in a temporal mode and um, in a secularized world. The, the, the spiritual claims, spiritual realities, theological authorities would simply disappear. That didn't happen, as the sociologists said had suggested it would. And by the way, the entire field of sociology, going back to August Comte and his positivism, the entire field of sociology was intended to provide an explanation for human social behavior that was an alternative to the Christian explanation. the sociologist said, look, you know, the secularization is gonna happen. It's inexorable. The modern age means secularization, but it doesn't, it doesn't. As Peter Berger said, the theory worked perfectly in Western Europe and the American university campus. That secularization theory worked pretty well on those two social locations. Beyond that, not so well. Berger, who was writing into his tenth decade of life, that'll inspire you professors, (laughs) writing major works into his nineties, he revisited his theory of secularization twice. And at the end of his life he said that the way it was working in the United States in particular was that it was pluralization it was moving from one dominant worldview to this diffusion of so many different worldviews. And he said, what people don't notice at first is that those who hold to the dominant worldview hold it differently, because it's now a matter of choice. This is, uh, this is exactly what Charles Taylor was talking about, the Canadian philosopher, who I think has done probably more than any other to describe the condition of the secular age. He says that even for believers, believing in the year 1500 and believing in the year 2000 are profoundly different experiences. And you say, well, we're talking about the same content, we're talking about the same faith once for all delivered to the saints, we're talking about the same gospel. But his point is social. He says, yes, yes, he says, but the person who believed in those truths in 1500 believed, and there was no alternative to that belief. Christianity provided the only." plausible explanation for why the sun came up in the morning. And all of life, it was—it re, it required the Christian theological truth claim to make sense. In 1500, you believed because everyone believed and there was no alternative to belief. But in the year 2000, when you say, I believe, I'm a Christian... I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe in biblical Christianity. You are stating that, and the first-person pronoun becomes far more important. And, of course, Brad Gregory and other historians will come along and say, well, that's why it all started with Luther. Here I stand. Ich han, ich God has helped me. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Here I stand. And, and that was remarkable in the 16th century. But, you know, when Luther said, here I stand... He didn't even mean that the same way that you or I might say, here I stand. Well, those conditions of belief Charles Taylor talks about, when we talk about history cut in three, divided into three, past, present, and future, pre-Christian, Christian, Christian, post-Christian, hold that for a moment because Charles Taylor says that Conditions of belief related to Christianity have changed into three different seasons, three different phases, three different parts, and they are, again, successive. He says that at one point it was impossible not to believe, then it became possible not to believe, and then it became impossible to believe. I think that's a brilliant insight. Now, we're not talking about the same thing as by reference to pre-Christian, Christian, Christian, and post-Christian. Don't try to overlay Charles Taylor as if we're talking about the same one, two, three, because he's beginning with my number two. He's beginning in the Christian age. He's just pointing out that uh, given Christendom, given the unitary truth claim of Christendom, and and given the, the unity of the culture, go back to 1500 again. It was impossible not to believe. Richard Dawkins, by the way, points out that it was impossible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist before Darwin. And uh, Darwin is as recent as our history. The Origin of Species was published the year the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary was established. The year before Southern Seminary was established, no one had heard of Darwinism. But in short order, in the intellectual world, everything changed. But Dawkins' point is this. Darwin's the key. Darwin's the key because without Darwin, you're stuck with Genesis. If you're stuck with Genesis, hard to be an atheist. True. Atheists have their predicament. The sense of this change, though, of the past, present, and future, and of the pre-Christian, Christian, Christian, post-Christian, and what... What Taylor talks about, uh, impossible not to believe, and then in, in the modern age, in our, in our own cultures, possible not to believe, and then impossible to believe, I, I think it's probably true that right now you know people who are living in each of those three conditions of belief. If you don't know them, you, you know of them, you're surrounded by them, they're in close proximity, there are still people for whom it is impossible not to believe, and God bless them, they live lives that are still unaccosted by major challenges to the Christian faith. Uh, My parents are both now with the Lord, but uh, their four parents were all Christians. I don't think they ever understood in the entirety of their lifetimes that challenges like the ones we face every hour would come. Uh, they were just steadfast in their faith. And even as all four had come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm confident they just assumed this is a, this is a Christian society. It's made up of Christians. Christianity's true. Everybody knows it. It's the authority. Everybody acknowledges it. And that, that second condition, possible not to believe, that, that was what I found when I was 13 years old and I was thrust into a very liberal middle school. I had gone to the seventh grade in junior high school in a, in a very intact southern culture. I went to the eighth grade in a middle school in the midst of a progressive educational experiment in South Florida. Those are two different worlds. The, the world between a junior high school and a middle school, boom. I had two atheist teachers and I, I didn't even know they were atheists. Now, I've got two of them as teachers. I, all of a sudden, I realize it's, uh, it's evidently possible not to believe. But you go to the elite university campus right now, and you don't have to go that far, but you know what I mean? You're, you're surrounded by them here. The overwhelming ethos is actually that it's impossible to believe the, the way we believe, Seamus Haney, the great Irish poet, said this, he said, I think we are still running on an unconscious that is informed by religious values. He meant Catholic, historic Christian values. He said, but I think that my youngsters' youngsters won't have that. He said that in 2002 in an interview. I think we're still running on an unconscious that's informed by religious values. In other words, there's still a Christ-haunted conscience, said Seamus Haney, in Ireland, but he said, my youngsters, youngsters, they won't have that. Haney's now dead. His youngsters have youngsters, and he's right. I don't know about them individually, but in Ireland, The situation has changed from which you had people who stepped off the sidewalk in deference to priests wearing collars to where right now priests are afraid to wear collars. And as I said, they're now having to import priests from Poland and from Africa. It's not only a church in recession, it's a church in retreat. One of the things I want us to note in terms of trying to understand this dynamic, you know, how, how do you sense this is happening? How do you sense that you're in one of these turning points from the age of, say, possible not to believe to impossible to believe? How do you know you're in one of these turning points from, from a Christian-dominated age to a post-Christian age? Well, one of the things I'm increasingly working on is the idea of cultural aspiration. So stay tuned, in the upcoming book I'm going to be dealing with this, Cultural Aspiration. And it comes down to understanding that in every culture there's an aspirational direction. and That aspirational direction says, you know, even to young people, you want to be cool, you head in this direction. You want to be uncool, all kinds of alternatives. Uh, but, but it's not just that, it's not just adolescence in their peer context. It's the larger society going all the way up to the elites of of the society and even the upper echelons of the elites of society where aspiration, bold, naked, blind, obsessive aspiration becomes the issue. But, But it's also just the general picture of the good life that is presented. One of the things I'm working on is the phrase ought to be. My grandmother was filled with oughts. She was a big southern lady. I mean that only because she was a titanic personality. She was big in every southern way. She carried a black patent leather purse the size of Arkansas. She never went out of the house except in a cotton dress with black patent leather shoes and a handkerchief in her hand, always holding the, the purse, the handkerchief, very close by. She had unique smells, powders. She, uh, she came out in the morning when she was ready in a cloud of powders. She was sweet. She loved me obsessively. And she was a moralist. Ought not to do that. Don't fidget. Ought not to do that. Don't touch your face in public. Ought not to do that. It was a lot of oughts. If you didn't have that grandmother, you have a warped childhood. You ought to have had one. (laughs) But I can just tell you, I grew up in a world of oughts, and I mean, it wasn't just coming from my grandmother. My parents were Mr. and Mrs. Ought, and that means ought and ought not. You ought to do this, you ought not to do this. Ought is a very important moral category. You don't hear so much of Ought in our society, because our society has lost the confidence in ought. It doesn't have to say ought if you control the advertising. You don't have to say ought if you control the cultural aspirations. You don't have to say ought if you control the politics. If you control the uh, the elites of cultural production, you control the academy. You don't have to say ought because ought is written into all your policies and all your ethos. It's what's driving your campus. It's what people think they ought to do. and how they ought to look and ought to think if they want to be a part of the culture that you ought to want to be a part of. Well, that's the issue. As a Protestant, I am reluctant to quote Sir Thomas More, but Sir Thomas More used the word ought a great deal. And, And one of the things he made very clear is that a man is known by his oughts. Culture is known by its oughts. Well, just ask yourself the question, what is the dominant sense of the society? What is it saying to young people when they arrive, not necessarily just at Duke, but when they arrive at Catawba Community College, what are they saying about ought? you ought to think this way if you want to be a success you ought to think this way if you're a morally upright person you ought to you ought to think about religion this way and just ask yourself is there anything in those oughts that points to you ought to believe in the christian truth claim is there anything in that that says you ought to identify with evangelical biblical christianity in other words the oughts are running away from us the 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 oughts and the ought not The, the change from a christendom where the oughts were controlled by the church to a situation of post-Christendom or post-Christianity where the church is now subjected to the aughts. That's exactly what's going on. You ought to modify your doctrine. You, 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 You ought to think this way. Just this morning, a major American newspaper ran an article instructing evangelical Christians, you ought to rethink your sexual morality, and you better do it fast. Because if you don't follow the instructions of the new oughts, you're going to be left behind. And those who leave you behind will celebrate it as serving the society. So very quickly, what's left behind, if, if, if we have this, this tripartite division? Then there's the pre-Christian condition and then the Christian condition. And again, that doesn't mean everyone in the society is a regenerate believing Christian. This is where Baptists have to look at this and say, if we were alive then, we would have to, and, and Christians were for at least part of that. But we would have to say, as Baptists, we can't buy into the idea that this is a Christian society, the way you Catholics and the way you Erastians and the way you others with your state churches, with a union, a throne, an altar, and all the rest. You can say this is a Christian culture. We can say this is a, Christian, a culture dominated by Christianity, but Christians are defined by the gospel. First Things Magazine, about a year ago, asked me to, and I couldn't turn this down, they asked me to write an article on why I am a Baptist. And I realized for first things dominated by intellectual Roman Catholics, that could be something of a freak show. Like inviting the one of the animals in the zoo to write why I am a gazelle, you know. Just well, this is gonna be interesting, let's take a look. And so I said, if you want to understand Baptists, you just have to understand that the Reformation in the sixteenth century said that the Catholic Church didn't take the scripture seriously enough. John Calvin said of Martin Luther, they don't take the, he doesn't take the Scripture seriously enough. The Genevan Reformation took it further, and then you, you jump over to England, and you have the, the Reformation, the, the English Reformation, which I find so many of my own roots, but, uh, you know, very quickly you had the Puritans decide that those who stayed inside the Church of England, they're never going to go far enough, and then the Separatists decided the Puritans were never going to go far enough. And they're Baptists because we decided the other separatists, nonconformists, weren't going to go far enough. That's how we get where we are. But just think about this for a moment nonetheless. What's left behind in this transition from a Christian condition to a post-Christian condition? Well, you could say what's left behind is first cultural opposition. Dig in. And uh, understand that the culture is just going to take no prisoners, that cultural opposition means that this tide of hostile secularism driven by those who believe in their emancipatory rhetoric, that they're going to free humanity increasingly, if forced by necessary, from the patriarchal, oppressive, heterosexualist, uh, heter- heteropatriarchical uh, influence of Christianity, and uh, they're going to do God's work, so to speak by nullifying historic Christian witness. That cultural opposition is close at hand. I think Crawford Gribben is right in that section that I quoted from him saying that uh, in increasing, increasing frequency, the articulation of Christian belief is going to be considered to be not only antisocial but illegal. But the second thing is cultural condescension. Terry Eagleton, the Marxist made this comment. He said, Societies become secular not when they dispense with religion altogether, but when they're no longer especially agitated by it. Well, oh, that's interesting. And and that does describe an awful lot of the secular response. Not so particularly agitated by it. Eagleton, by the way, was uh, no, he is a Marxist, as I say. He's been trying to think through these things for a long time. He says this, just trying to explain this, as if we should just take this as a calm fact. He's trying to calm us down. If you're concerned about this, be calm, says Eagleton. Look, quote, modern societies are faithless by their very nature. It's the convictions or lack of them embodied in everyday practices that matter not what archbishops or militantly secular scientists may argue. End quote. That's that lack of agitation. He says, "I'm not agitated by archbishop anybody. I'm not agitated by Richard Dawkins because they both take the argument too seriously. Just get over it. It doesn't really matter all that much. It's just, it's it's embedded practices. His point is, he you follow his theory is look." You just watch people. They're not Christians. Just watch them. You know? <laughs> you know, you don't have to go up and argue with them about the faith. Their embedded practices aren't distinctively Christian. We win. Modern society is faithless by definition. not to fight it. We already won. Eag- uh, Eagleton went on to say that uh, what happens in this situation is that religion becomes just a personal pastime. Harmless. How harmless, he says, it's like breeding gerbils or collecting porcelain. It's harmless. Just Don't tell him not to do it anymore. Who cares? It's very similar to what law professor Stephen Carter at Yale, a generation, wrote about as uh, the modernist reduction to religion as nothing more than God or belief in God as a hobby. Well, that's your hobby. No significant truth claims wouldn't be allowed anyway. The third reality left behind are what I call Christian burial grounds and bare-ruined choirs, vestiges of Christianity. By the way, the phrase, bare-ruined choirs, goes back to Sonnet 73 of William Shakespeare when he could anticipate a time when the Christians had disappeared. And in the church, the choir, speaking of a particular part of the architecture, very close to the altar. It's uh, empty, ruined. Christian burial grounds. I um, was involved in leading a funeral, graveside ceremony, in Cave Hill Cemetery, very near our campus. Cave Hill Cemetery is designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. It's one of the largest cemeteries in the world. It is in Louisville, Kentucky. Southern Seminary's graves are there. Our founders' graves are there. Successive generations are there. You can go and walk among them, and it's a very moving experience, but it's a moving experience to be anywhere in that cemetery, and the thing is it's overwhelmingly a testimony to Christian faith. People at least articulate Christianity at death, even if they did not in life. Almost every gravestone includes some scriptural reference or some statement of comfort grounded in Christianity. You walk in a cemetery, you understand something was once different. People once believed differently. This is what they said when they had to try to squeeze out some kind of explanation of life. What's left behind Christian burial grounds and bare ruined choirs? Philip Larkin, English poet, in his poem from 1954 entitled Church Going, which sounds like a lament. He had left Christianity. It sounds like a lament. He then asked the question, and what remains when disbelief has gone? Grass, weedy, brambles, buttress, sky. Weedy pavement even, he said. That's, That's what's left. But you'll notice he didn't say what is left when belief is gone. He said what's left when disbelief is gone. In other words, post-Christianity reaches a point where it's no longer the absence of belief. It's even the absence of disbelief. You don't even have to disbelieve in anything anymore. A truly post-Christian condition doesn't remember it had ever believed anything. Unless you walk in the cemetery and see those gravestones, or you look at those buildings and say, why did people build that? But finally, I want to suggest that what is left behind, and we must pray is left behind, and we must give our lives to be certain is left behind, is a new missionary church, a new missionary church. And you say, well, Christianity, where it's faithful, ought always to have been missionary, and it began as a missionary movement, and and, uh, when Christianity has been faithful, it has regained that missionary emphasis and has seen itself as a missionary people. And we are, we are shocked by the absence of missionary concern, missionary sending, missionary fervor, not by the presence of it. When we explain the existence of the Southern Baptist Convention, we go back to 1845 and we say that those Baptists who became Southern Baptists, gathered together. The one thing that drove them was the establishment of missionary societies in order to send not only missionaries to the nations, but also to establish churches on the frontier, even if, by the way, we now know the frontier meant Tuscaloosa. That tells you something about America in 1845. 1845. But to send foreign missionaries, that that, that was the spark, and that's how they were described then, mission-sending society. Southern Baptists didn't establish seminaries in 1845, they didn't establish a publishing house in 1845, they established two missionary boards as a a manifestation of what had been missionary societies, and the, the shift from the society to the board was very important because it wasn't just a shift in nomenclature, it was a shift in vision. These were to be permanent boards to establish an ongoing work to combine the support and missionary energies of churches in a permanent way. And you say, well, that's always been the case then. Southern Baptists have been a missionary people all the time. Why are you talking about a new missionary church? Well, I'm obviously not talking about a new church. I'm talking about the church that Christ declared in Matthew chapter 16 when He said, "'Upon this rock I will build My church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it.'" But I am talking about a church with a missionary self-knowledge and a missionary passion that isn't just an adjustment to changing times, but rather is transformed into an understanding that missiology is now everywhere all the time. It requires looking at that map that I so well remember as a royal ambassador and recognizing it should all have been marked unreached. All of it, all the time. I want to draw our attention to a text you know quite well. From the opening to the book of Acts, beginning in verse 6 in chapter 1 of Acts. So, when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, I know you know that passage. I know you have heard it preached so faithfully here so many times. I know it's a part of the passion, the DNA of this institution. I, I know that. But I want to direct your attention to this for just a moment. Look at what Christ says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the, of the earth. Now, here's the point. Now, here's how I heard it as a boy. I heard it in terms of that map. I heard it as if what we were being told is that we need to conquer more of this map. We start in Jerusalem. It's like concentric work, concentric circles, we start in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria, and then to the end of the earth, and it's as if okay, we we think of an invasion force, a Christian form of D-Day, with the whole world as as our as, as the population we're trying to reach, and 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 so we start in Jerusalem, we secure Jerusalem, we we, we change the color of Jerusalem from whatever marks unreached to reached, and 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 then Judea. And and so we win Judea and look at the language. You look at Southern Baptist evangelistic materials and mission materials from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, as I have. And you look at it and you'll go, I don't know that I recognize those people. It's military language. It's, it's military language about reaching people and, and 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 securing them, securing places, securing nations for, for Christianity. And I'm not criticizing because I I, I look at that and I think that's where so much of my own theological, spiritual, Christian, missiological formation took place. These are conversionists, serious conversionists. These are Baptists. But you know Baptists, of all people, ought to recognize we never conquer any territory for long. One of the professors quite liberal at Southern when I was there as a student was Bill Leonard teaching church history. And uh, he went on to be the dean of the Wake Forest Divinity School. And uh, Bill Leonard's not a big fan of the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention. But, uh, Bill Leonard used to talk about Southern Baptists as the Catholic Church of the South. And what he meant by that was that we'd become culturally dominant in the South so that everybody knew who the Baptists were. The Baptists had the tall steeple churches in town. And even if the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians had more money, we had more people. Our Little League team could beat them any day of the week. Our RAs could take on their little Methodist boys, leave them cut and bleeding. We go off reciting the Great Commission and singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Methodists just found out so. <laughs> All right. You understand what Leonard was saying there, that we're the Catholic Church of the South, just looking, go go to a county seat church, county seat town, I mean, in the the South, and uh, you see Baptist dominance, at least architecturally. There may be nobody in town on the middle of a business day because they moved out to the periphery, to the department stores and who knows what, but at least there was a sign that Baptists were dominant here. That raises the question that I spoke of in the predicament on Tuesday. From a Christian perspective, which is better, being loved by the culture or hated by it? That is not an answerable question. But at least for a long season, we thought we had worked hard to achieve being liked by the culture. How's that working out right now in Wake County? What's your non-discrimination law going to look like? And how long will Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary be exempt? How long will any of our teams be able to play in the NCAA? How, how, how long are the exemptions granted to Title IX, non-discrimination law, when it comes to matters of sex and Gender, how, how long are those exemptions going to last? The Equality Act, you know, it, it, it would eliminate them. To court. It's already passed twice in the House. All it takes is a winning Senate vote. I realize that's a challenge right now, but you know what? If you believe history is moving our way on that, we need to have a talk. Just a matter of time. We're no longer the Catholic Church of the South in terms of our cultural dominance. We can still fight back. We still have work to do, but we don't fool ourselves. What's needed is a new missionary church. Well, what would that look like? Just, it's to say there are very few actual tactics and strategies available to us. And very quickly, you just look at the history of Christianity in terms of trying to figure out how you relate to the larger culture. Number one, you can try withdrawal. You can try something like the uh, the radical Anabaptist movement. And by the way, the modern kind of left-wing evangelicals who want to talk Anabaptist, they're not Anabaptists. If you're holding conferences and you're raking in thousands of dollars, and you're publishing, and you're in the mainstream media. You're not Anabaptists. Ask the Amish. My family background is Amish. My, uh, my molar ancestors came to the United States from the Palatine States as a part of the – they didn't call themselves Amish, they were the, the brothers, and uh, the brethren, they, they came due to persecution to the Anabaptists. They came, my ancestor, Ludwig muller came in 1736 on the good ship Thistle. He had to get to Ireland in order to come with his family to Pennsylvania, Lancaster County. And you know, I like to go back to Lancaster County. I, I've, I've had the ability to reconnect with some family ties there, and they don't know what to do with me. They're kind. But I've been able to reconnect uh, with some folks there, but you know what? The Amish aren't as disconnected as they think. The, and and it's uh, two things there very quickly. Number one, as I point out, Amish children may go to bed without electricity, and Amish cows don't. If you're going to sell dairy, guess what? You're going to have to have the state says you have to do this. And so even out where uh, where I'm often in rural Kentucky, there are Amish farms. There there's no electricity in the in the house, but sometimes there is in the barn. If you're going to sell that milk, different world. The other problem with that kind of withdrawal is that the uh, the folk way begins to dominate over theology, and to, to preserve the folk way takes the uh, the primary energy. The second thing is just surrender, just uh, just discard doctrine and all cognitive claims. And there are those who have suggested this. This is uh, th- this is the survival tactic. Just like the transcendentalists in the, um, in the 19th century, just redefine Christianity as a mood, an ethos, a sentimentality, uh, just, just get rid of it. The, or, or you can try cultural negotiation. That was the tactic of Protestant liberalism. The, the Protestant liberals didn't begin with a tactic of surrender. They just got there by endless negotiation in which they were always giving. The plan one of this negotiation was like Schleimacher, Harry Emerson, Fosdick, you, and by the way, Fosdick and, and Schleimacher were both, uh, I didn't realize they weren't contemporaries, but, uh, but, but you, could, you can consider the German father of theological liberalism, and then in, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, the great famous liberal prophet uh, of, of uh, Protestant liberalism in New York City, they both said, look, let's negotiate away the doctrine and keep the morality. <laughs> How did that work out for them? Without the theology, there isn't a morality. It's just a matter of negotiation, and in those negotiations, biblical Christianity always loses. Then there's negotiation phase two, and I realize this is going to date it because I, I look out and I realize many of you, but even during the time I've been at Southern Seminary, you have people like Brian McLaren, you know, the movement known as Emergent and all of this. This was negotiation strategy number two. Try to give up as much as you must in order to remain cool. And today you have the post-evangelicals, the ex-evangelicals. this is a negotiation part two. And you'll notice these ex-evangelicals and all the rest. The world loves them for a headline, but will then drop them like a rock then the fifth, you know, tactic or strategy would just be defiance. I'm going to fight back. Or sixth, retrenchment. I don't have to describe them. You know what I'm talking about. But the seventh is this uh, recovery by means of a genuinely biblical ecclesiology and transformed missionary energy by the way, you talk about uh, cultural engagement, I'm often asked to speak to that. I, I, I just tell you that cultural engagement almost always ends with the culture winning. That doesn't mean we don't engage it, but I just mean that the, the, the methodologies of cultural engagement, by definition, don't gain much ground, often lose it. Still, still again, it's that's, that's not a closed door, but it, uh, it gives us very little ground for overwhelming hope. So then what? what? What does this look like? Rod Dreher quite famously and I think helpfully has uh, suggested what he calls the Benedict's option, and this is the the idea. And he, it's a long story. He's not really talking so much about Saint Benedict uh, in, in terms of the Benedictine tradition, but he's talking about the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre who ended his work after virtue with this phrase, if the tradition of the virtues... Uh, was able to survive the horrors of the Dark Ages, we are not entirely without hope. He says, we are waiting not for a Godot, but for another, doubtless, very different Saint Benedict. And Now, who was Saint Benedict? Very quickly, Saint Benedict uh, was, of course, uh, from 480 to 548, later identified the patron saint of Europe, People say he founded the Benedictine order, not intentionally, but that came after his life. He did produce the rule of St. Benedict in 516, which produced modern Western monasticism, and that defined monks living in community under an abbot. Massive influence in in the formation of Europe, including the idea of constitutionalism and the rule of order by law and all of this. But the point is, what Dreher is talking about is a strategic withdrawal. Let's just withdraw. And uh, he does so in making the argument... He says this, Today a new post-Christian barbarism reigns. Many uh, believers are blind to it and churches are too weak to resist. Politics offers little help in the spiritual crisis. What is needed is the Benedict option, he says, a strategy that draws on the authority of Scripture and the wisdom of the ancient church, the goal to embrace exile from the mainstream culture and construct a resilient counterculture. Well... There's something to be said, but by the way, the Benedict option really isn't much of an option for Baptists because we have to think in terms of individual conversion. That doesn't lend itself very well to a Benedict option. What I'm suggesting in conclusion is that what we need is not a Benedict option, but an army of young St. Patricks. 85, 461, much about, him, much about him is shrouded in mist, but his story is basically that he he was a young boy in Britain. There in the 5th century, he was kidnapped at age 16, made to be a slave in Ireland. Somehow he escaped, went back to his family. But the point is, he became a priest, and he willingly, intentionally went back to Ireland, which had been where he had been so mistreated. And he is at least credited with bringing the gospel to Ireland and establishing Irish Christianity. The point is this. He was taken to Ireland and faced horrible adversity. He escaped, went back to England, and then fueled with a passion for the gospel, went back to Ireland. That's what we need. We need a generation of young Christians who feel the adversity and still go to Ireland. We need an army of young Christians, young believers who... Are bearing witness, even when that witness may be unwanted, when it may be out of tune, out of time, when it may be considered out of touch. We need an army of new young St. Patricks invading the post-Christian context just as Patrick went back to Ireland, just as Paul headed to Rome, city by city, how the, the gospel was taken, city by city, church by church, following the call and answering the summons. Our churches, over against the world, may need the influence of Benedict to remind us that even if the church is the only place the truth is found, in the church the truth is found. That's good. But it's not enough the church be found in the church. It's not enough that the truth be found in the church. It's our responsibility to take the truth to those who desperately need to hear the gospel. We need an army of new young St. Patrick's and Ireland, by the way, is right here. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for all that you've given us, including the call and the commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, making disciples. Father, may we see a new map in which all the world all the time is our call. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.